Shalom. Welcome to the Christchurch Jerusalem Bible Study, where we wrestle with God's Word. For more information on the church, to listen to sermons, to contact us, or to make a gift, visit ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Brothers and sisters, welcome to Christchurch Jerusalem for our evening Bible study. Thanks for joining us. The notes from last week's study, I hope, will be uh, online. You can download them and follow along. Uh, just a delight that uh, you're, you're with us. Friends, we're all one family. It doesn't always seem like it. We're different colors, nationalities, races, and even time zones. But it is the same Holy Spirit that unites us around the same word, in the same kingdom, uh, all called to the same holiness and uh, blessed by the same gospel. So we acknowledge that the Holy Spirit is present and our brother, Andrew, from South Africa, will lead us in prayer. Almighty Father, we thank you for this time together. Uh, we thank you for your wonderful, spectacular creation and thank you that you have placed it placed us in it, that you have called us to be part of your kingdom. And you've called us to make sacrifices and primarily to make a sacrifice of ourselves. Help us to understand what that means each day. Thank you that you have taught us to love our neighbors, that you've given us the tools to do so. Thank you that you have made time and space for us and help us too to make time and space for you. And we thank you for this time and this space. May this be holy time together. And we thank you for the teaching on the Jubilee and redemption. Help us to be part of your Jubilee program and to be part of your redemption uh, program as we have this time on earth together. May we know the strength of your kingdom um, your love in all that we do each day, that we might support one another, support those that are sick, those that are grieving at the moment. And may we focus on your word and stand more in awe of you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks. Brother. Amen. So, as is our tradition, we have our summary from our discussion from last week. So, Leviticus 25. Uh, discussion on verses 1 to 22. Leviticus 25 reminds us that Israel is still camped at the base of Mount Sinai. Many of these laws and commands in Leviticus, then, are given in faith. That is, the Hebrews have not yet entered the promised land to enact many of these instructions. In fact, the generation hearing these commands will not be the generation doing these commands. One takeaway uh, is that holiness can still be performed and should be performed whilst in the wilderness and not only in comfort zones like the Holy Land. For these instructions to be performed in Israel, they will need to be handed down from one generation to the next. It is incumbent upon parents to teach their children the word of God. So here Moses addresses all the people of Israel, not only the priesthood or the ruling elites. In the future, when the people enter the land, the earth itself is to engage in a Sabbath rest. Now, in the biblical mind, the physical land was not separated from the spirituality of the community. 
Instead, it was an intimate part of the spiritual health of the community. The land needs to rest as much as the people do. This concept of a Sabbath for the earth is not new to Leviticus. It was mentioned before in Exodus 23.11, but it's reiterated here in the connection to holiness. In Moses' last speech, before Israel enters into the land of Canaan, he adds that during the Sabbath year, also known as the Shemitah, in the Feast of Sukkot, the Torah is to be read before the people. That's Deuteronomy 31. Thus, the seventh year is both a rest for the land and an extensive time of community Bible study for the nation. Allowing the earth to recover from the rigors of farming and not sowing or reaping as normal is an immense application of trust in God. It is a radical declaration that the land belongs to the Lord, not to the farmer. Agriculturally, allowing the land to fallow is wise management of the soil's nutrients and longevity. So there's something in there about us having dominion over the earth in the right way. Spiritually, relinquishing control over the earth is a form of submission to the king of the kingdom of heaven. When Israel finished the conquest under Joshua, the land would be allotted up among the tribes of Israel. However, the land is a gift and it ultimately belongs to God. So these initial portions of territory would become permanent among the 12 tribes. Should an Israelite fall into difficult economic times and be required to sell, really lease, his property, then eventually there would come a time of restoration where all things would be returned to the family. This is the Jubilee. It's not a socialist system of land redistribution as it's retained within Pacific original families, not given to poor strangers. In the Jubilee year, another Sabbath of the land is observed. The Lord declares that he will supply the needs of the people by commanding a blessing so that the land will produce enough to sustain everyone for three years. At a command from the Lord, the earth will not be able to say no. It will supply what is necessary. Historically, we do not know whether the year of Jubilee was implemented in Israel on a national scale. There is a lack of literary evidence. Jeremiah 34 does describe an attempt to implement at least some of the Jubilee principles, particularly the freeing of slaves. Once exile occurred and the tribal distinction was lost, then the Jubilee was unable to be fulfilled in a literal sense. You could not give back somebody's land when you just didn't know who it belonged to anymore. Thus, it began to take on a more prophetic and messianic sense, such as we find in the book of Daniel, Dead Sea Scrolls, and the second temple work called the Book of Jubilees. So with that background, we continue our study in the instructions of the Jubilee in Leviticus 25. So we're going to read from, well, I'm going to read from verses 23. It's about 30 verses, so buckle up, bear with me. Here we go. I'm reading from an ESV. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the country you possess, you shall allow 
a redemption of the land. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. If a man has no one to redeem it, and then himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it, let him calculate the years since he sold it and pay back the balance to the man to whom he sold it and then return to his property. But if he does not have sufficient means to recover it, then what he sold shall remain in the land of the buyer until the year of the Jubilee. In the Jubilee, it shall be released and he shall return to his property. If a man sells a dwelling house in a walled city, he may redeem it within a year of its sale. For a full year, he shall have the right of redemption. If it is not redeemed within a full year, then the house in the walled city shall belong in perpetuity to the buyer throughout his generations. It shall not be released in the Jubilee. But the houses of the villages that have no wall around them shall be classified with the fields of the land. They may be redeemed and they shall be released in the Jubilee. As for the cities of the Levites, the Levites may redeem at any time the houses in the cities they possess. And if one of the Levites exercises his right of redemption, then the house that was sold in the city that they possess shall be released in the Jubilee. For the houses in the cities of the Levites are their possession among the people of Israel. But the fields of pasture land belonging to their cities may not be sold that is their possession forever. If your brother becomes poor, cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him for profit, but fear your God, that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for a profit. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan, and to be your God. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. Then he shall go out from you. He and his children with him shall go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his fathers. They are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but will fear your God. As for your male and female slaves, whom you may have, you may buy male and female slaves from among the nations that are around you. You may also buy from among the, the strangers who sojourn with you and their clans that are with you, who have been born in your land, and that may be, they may be your property. You may bequeath them to your sons after you to inherit as a possession forever. You may make slaves of them, but over your brothers, the people of Israel, you shall not rule one another ruthlessly. If a stranger or sojourner with you becomes rich and your brother beside him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner with you or a member of the stranger's clan, then after he is sold, he may be redeemed. One of his brothers may redeem him or his uncle or his cousins may redeem him or a close relative from his clan may redeem him. Or if he grows rich, he may redeem himself. He shall calculate with his buyer from the year when he was sold himself to him until the year of Jubilee, and the price of his sale shall vary with the number of years. The time he was with his owner shall be rated as the time of a hired worker. 
if there are still many years left, he shall pay proportionally for his redemption some of this sale price. If there remain but a few years until the year of Jubilee, he shall calculate and pay for his redemption in proportion to his years of service. He shall treat him as a worker hired year by year. He shall not rule ruthlessly over him in your sight. And if he is not redeemed by those, these means, then he and his children with him shall be released in the year of Jubilee. For it is to me that the people of Israel are servants. They are my servants, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. All right. So there's quite a lot there. But um, before we take any major general comments, we're going to do one slightly different thing that we normally do. I'm actually going to call on uh, Brother Dan, who you know had traveled and sojourned through the wilderness of Germany. And he was obviously shocked by all the paganism that he saw there and has returned in fear and trembling back to the Holy Land. Uh, he's with us now. And he's actually got a few comments to share. So, Dan. Thank you. Good to be back. Haven't seen you all in a while, but good to be back. Uh, my thoughts on the year of Jubilee. First of all, I think uh, there is not so much evidence in the Bible that it has been even celebrated by our people uh, throughout the Bible. Maybe Nehemiah from what I've seen, but I'm not even sure about that. But generally, uh, when we look at that, it's like a big reset button on everything. You know, properties being reverted to the original owners. Debts are forgiven. Um, you know, rest for the land, as you said. Um, slaves being freed and so on. So it's sort of like a big reset button that happens twice in 100 years. And that's a pretty interesting economical system that God created um, for us to follow. Again, there's no evidence that we followed it really. But the idea and the purpose, and now my passage, the one we're going to go through, is, is the one relating to the land. And it begins, if I really start with uh, verse 20, it says, but if you say, what are we going to eat on the seventh year? If we do not sow or gather in our crops, as you said, they're not going to do it for the seventh year. And it reminds me personally of Matthew 6, um, where Jesus said, you know, don't worry about, don't be anxious about those things, about what we're going to eat or what we're going to wear. But in this case, it's eat. So with the faith issue here, has been present all along. It's not something new in the New Testament. Yes, Jesus is really um, speaking a lot about faith, but we can already see uh, something here. People needed to believe, not to sow, not to use the land. It's a big thing to trust God for three years of food when for the people. It's not just something personal either. So that's just an interesting remark to make. Uh, so as we said, this was an unusual economic uh, system that God created. And one of those things, when it comes to land, it prevents greed. So, for example, a generation can continue to have the same land and it can be unfair. So in the eyes of God, it was good to reset it every 50 years. Uh, so this is one of those things, because we can see today equalities. No one can become too rich or no one can become too poor. So eventually, every 50 years, there's a reset. That's what I mean by a reset. So I think about it quite a lot. And it represents God's mercy. And as you said, also sovereignty, you said, because the land is his. So it also represents that. Um, 
these are my thoughts. We can continue to read and can discuss about it, uh, about the guideline, guidelines, uh, because God also provided guidelines on, on how we should do it for stability, to keep it stable and to keep it fair. And this is basically what we're reading. But I think I say all this to just give a more of a wide perspective on what it is we're reading, because it's so easy, especially in Leviticus, to continue and read and get boggled down in the small details. But the big picture is this, that God wanted it to create this economical system that, that would honor him. And yeah, when the, when the land comes back to the, to the way that it was, it was because of God's choice when he gave the land to the 12 tribes and so on. So I think it's good to just keep that in mind as we continue to read. Uh, yeah. Any thoughts on that? Uh, I have a question for you guys because you're Israelis. Um, you've mentioned it before, Mordecai. The rule in this country is you actually can't buy the land. Yes. Yeah. You cannot buy the land. You can rent it from a, a specific Misad, and that old Misad changes in every single area. In the north, it's a different name where I was serving in the army. So you cannot own it. You, you own the apartment, you are living it physically, but you don't own the land, which is, you know, basically where your apartment building is standing at. Which is interesting because that's actually what you find in the text. Yeah. Right? If you actually own a, a house inside a walled city, it's yours forever. But as soon as you go and talk about land outside of a walled city, that's it. It uh, shows, shows over. It actually belongs to the Lord. And his economical system is we have a reset, as you said, Dan. We've got a reset every 50 years, and you've got to portion it all back again. And I like the way that God um, gives his proof text, you know, because he says to the children of Israel, you were servants. You're my servants, right? Uh, I, I took you out of Egypt. You serve me. I get to decide who, who gets, gets what around here. Um, which is it's some of the strongest language God actually uses. He's used other language like I make you holy, I love you very much, you know, you know, you're an absolute treasure. Here he goes, let's just remember who's a servant here, okay? Uh, and not me, it's you guys. And um, so I say this way in terms of my, my special economy. That's also on the same level of no one, no man shall boast, which is a New Testament kind of statement. And that's the same here. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, no man shall boast. You can't boast. I can because I'm God, but you can't because yeah, you're, you're just those. Yeah, and that's the dichotomy. Here's this king of the universe who says you're servants. Yes, I'm a servant. Oh, by the way, I'm going to wash your feet. You know, and you go, oh, where does that one come from? Um, I still want you all to obey me. Because I'm still king. Yes, you're still king. Well, I'm going to come wash your feet. It's an incredible uh, little little piece of um, Hebraic tension that we see all throughout. And if we are comparing Jesus, it's also good to note that he was reading from the book of Isaiah concerning the favorable year of the, of the Lord. That's also an interesting thought. So is the favorable year of the Lord, is that the Jubilee? That's what we're talking about? To my understanding, yes. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. No, you might be right. I just... Yeah. It, it's actually is it's, uh, it's referring to the jubilee in, 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 in that sense. Yeah. Well, while we've got you, Shimshon, um, you got a hand raised. Keep talking, Rabbi. Okay, so Nigeria. All right. Um, I just wanted to mention that um, even here back in Nigeria, I, I want to believe it's in Britain, 
that the Land Use Act is owned, the land is owned by the government and they give it to you, you buy it from the government. If the government owns the land, you don't own the land, then you renew. Um, if it's the local government, then you renew every 50 years. Um, they say 49 years, um, then you renew your ownership of the land and you, they give you a certificate of occupancy, C of O, uh, which grants you permission to use that land for that period of time. But of course, you'll be given the right to renew it every 50 years. But if you're buying it from the federal government, then it's every 99 years, which is talking about 100 years, um, double jubilee, which I believe it's, 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 um, it's a template that is borrowed from the scripture and um, uh, which I believe we, we copied it from the Brits because we were colonized by the British government. And um, which is very interesting to note that um, this tradition somehow finds itself into today's um, administrations. Actually, that is interesting. Um, I hadn't actually thought of that, but yeah, we have the concept of crown land in all British territories. Um, my brother from Hong Kong. Okay, obviously now China owns uh, everything, but it, is, the, is there still a law where it's old British that you have to renew a lease on your property? Yeah, so um, uh, for 50 years, um, same with Nigeria, I guess. But yeah, all the land we, we own is uh, from the new territories. It's called the crown lease. But um, in 50 years after 97, things will change because we we're no longer under the crown. <laughs> This, at this point, we can all go boo hiss, you know, but uh, it's a, blessings on our friends there in Hong Kong. Sharon, you've got a hand raised. Just a quick question. I wondered if they still had, um, so in my study Bible, it says right beside this chapter that the date on it is around 1445 or 1279 BC. So, you know, obviously they started, started at some point around here to have private property, but do they still have records somewhere? Like does, is somewhere in... Jewish society with who owns what right now? Like, is there names attached to land at all from history past? What, what, what history are you talking about? So like these guys had this land and then they say, you know, so in verse, like, you know, in verse 34, but the field of the common land of their cities may not be sold for it is their perpetual possession. Like these guys had the same land in the family for years. These guys you're talking about was like three something thousand years ago. Nobody knows who owns what right now. Yeah, because we don't even know which tribe they are coming from, you know? So there's no records at all of which land lost? Kohans and Levi Levites have, but the others don't. So in the summary, um, I, the, the summary says, uh, people can check, we're at Mount Sinai. So the laws that are being given are to be done in the future. When, when we actually come into the land. So we've got 40 years to go. So the generation that is hearing Moses speak is not going to be the generation that puts this into practice. That's actually an incredible thought when you think about it, that we're going to set up some instructions and Moses is saying to the people who are listening, you'd better teach the next generation because they're the ones that are actually physically going to put this into practice. And, um, and then when they're going to, they're going to settle in territory, that obviously the houses they didn't build, you know, vineyards they didn't plant, all of those sort of things that, that uh, God is going to promise them. But then he's going to set up the tribal allotments. And as you, as you, as you also mentioned, no one knows who, where those tribal allotments are anymore. We know what the general map is, but there was, there's been an exile. And people don't know whether they're from Asher or from Benjamin, largely. 
And so you can't actually physically do the Jubilee anymore. Not possible. So it takes on another meaning. And as we've already mentioned, the year of the Lord's favor is appearing in the prophets. So the Jubilee is beginning to take on a prophetic meaning. Suddenly, oh, we can't do this physically. I'll oh, just, just throw it out of the Bible. No way. We can actually start using this in another way. And um, we can have some incredibly powerful prophetic and, as we'll see, messianic inclinations. So much so that uh, Jewish people will turn around, or a group of Jewish people in the Dead Sea Scrolls and in the Book of Jubilees will turn around and map all of human history by Jubilees, even before there were Jewish people, right? And uh, which, is, which is, if you read the Book of Jubilees and portions of the Dead Sea Scrolls, They've got time all figured out based on this little 50-year 50 50 year cycle. All right. A um, couple of hand raised there. So, Vida or David? Uh, question, Aaron. With regard to the cities, if I understand correctly, the cities would belong to a tribe, not really an individual, and besides the flea cities that you could flee to, which would belong to, I think, Levi. But cities belong to a tribe. Could people outside that tribe own houses in that city? Because surely the houses in that city always belong to the tribe, if, if, I'm, if I understand correctly. Well, the, this, these rules we're getting now, it's actually saying, no, it, uh, you can purchase houses inside city walls, and that's a, that's a, a legitimate purpose in uh, purchase and you own it. So in regardless of the tribe, so a Dan city of Dan, somebody from another tribe could own a house there and they didn't have to release it back to that. Yeah, of, the, of a house inside a walled city. But once we get to the land, there's an interesting connection that, that humans have with land, which we've talked about previously in Leviticus. There is an intricate connection. The earth does have a sense. It can sense it, uh, humans on it, can sense the nature of sin on it, and it can react. Uh, hence Paul's comment on creation is groaning for its redemption. It is sentient uh, in that way. Um, but the land has to return to the people that previously um, were given it. Right? Even though God has said the land is mine, no one's actually giving the land back to him. He's somehow partnered with tribal allotments. He's partnered with humans in family groups and said, this is yours, this is yours, it's all mine, but every 50 years, let's, let's reset the button, as uh, Dan said. Let's, let's go back to the way I had it all set up, and let's start again. There's all kinds of reasons why that might be. We'll, we'll ask those questions in a minute, and basically I'll ask, why do you think we've got this reset? Like what, what, is the, what is the point? What are we trying to preserve or protect? What, part, what characteristic of the Lord do, are we actually seeing here? And then we'll go into the Redeemer concepts. But uh, Yvonne from Brazil. Yeah, I, I've always been um, kind of fascinated with the Jubilee and I'm always trying to look at patterns in Scripture where um, a Jubilee concept or idea, and a couple um, came to mind. One is in Exodus where they're Exodus 19 at Mount Sinai, where they're going to, there's going to be a division of land and a division of, there's going to be a division of the people in individual groups. And there's a culmination of 49 years, that seven week period, which is going to culminate at Pentecost. 
And it's interesting because there's a passage through the water. It's a passage through the Red Sea. And it's just like a reset going into the land. And another one that came to mind as I was, I've been studying this for quite a while, is Joshua chapter 6. There's another passage through the, the Jordan. And um, again, the seven weeks marching and both of those, those incidents of both of those narratives um, end with a trumpet blast. And you have the seven times around on the seventh day with a trumpet blast. And um, so you see, again, it's going to, they're going to go in through after Jericho, but there's going to be the re- redivision of the land. It's, it's, and, and, and it's interesting because even, um, even Rahab's, you know, Jericho is, is to be had harem, right? It's to be set apart. And so it's very interesting. You look at these two concepts, the crossing and of the waters and reestablishing new territory, you know, the division of the land, the seven weeks, the, the um, trumpet blast, that purification. And it's interesting also, you know, of course, Mount Sinai coming out of Passover, Passover in the past with, you know, this whole concept of leaving Sinai, the 49. And then we we have the ultimate, it's interesting because it's kind of like a past, present, and future, because then we have the future redemption where Messiah will come back and will <clears throat> reclaim the nations from, from Satan and will reestablish the great and ultimate jubilee. So I, I think it's very interesting, and there's probably more patterns of, of jubilee through scripture, and I just think it's very fascinating. So everything you did by looking at patterns is exactly what Jewish people have been doing ever since they got into the land. Once you can't literally do this, then you've got to start looking for these other things. You go, why is this actually here in the text if I can't do it? Right? If I don't know who I'm supposed to give the land to, if I can't do it, I've got to start looking at these, uh, these other reasons. And it becomes, as you would, becomes a pattern you find in Scripture. It becomes prophetic, as the prophets do. Certainly becomes messianic. Is uh, this sort of you know idealized? Well, one day we will do this uh, again properly, and uh, that looks good. Andrew, um, South Africa. Just a, a general comment on a passage. There seem to be two groups of people that are referred to here: the Israelites, who are God's servants, very clearly God's servants, and then there are the other nations, and they seem to be treated differently in terms of. The the, uh, their redemption and how they're treated as slaves. Uh, it's just surprising to me that God would treat them differently. But, but maybe the emphasis needs to be on the, the fact that Israelites have to, are to be God's servants, uh, and that's why they're treated differently. Uh, but what, why would the other nations be treated as slaves more ruthlessly? Why should they have more trouble being redeemed, etc.? Excellent question. No, really good. Got to wrestle with this. Let's do it now. Okay, guys. Um, slavery has obviously been a massively hot topic all throughout uh, history, and um, and you know, let's not leap into American slavery because actually, other nations own more slaves than they ever did. Okay, um, the word slave comes from slav, was originally white people. Okay, um, got it here as well. A lot of nations had slaves. And even our dear brother Paul told a slave to go back to his master, which causes all kinds of interesting theological uh, debates, discussions, headaches. Okay, you know, another book we wish was not in the Bible. Um, okay, uh, my Bible is getting really thin by about now. Uh, 
uh, and so let's wrestle with it. Israel is a servant, right, to the Lord. Excellent. And, and uh, we, we can see that also clearly in the way Paul describes himself in the New Testament and how we are described even by Jesus. Remember, at the end of the day, when it's time for our eyes to close and open again, all we want to hear is well done, good and faithful servant, not good and faithful friend, good and faithful buddy, you know, good and faithful sojourner with the Lord, good and faithful servant. Okay, great. But then there's this strange thing here, which seems to, it cuts against the grain in some of our traditions, that there are these other people that are slaves and they seem to be treated differently. So what do we think, guys? What, what's going on? It's been the same down through human history that humans love to oppress and control other humans. Okay, sure. That, 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 that's uh, what humans do. Um, but that's not what God is telling us to do here. Surely he's not saying let's go out and oppress people. That sounds like fun. Um, uh, that doesn't seem like a command. However, there is this, how would we get slaves? We've actually dealt with slaves before in Deuteronomy, and we had some really good discussions there. But how do we get them? Is it, Shimshon, are you, are you answering that question? Yes, I want to just throw in the light there. Now we see here that um, these people are not being forced into slavery. They are actually coming to submit themselves into this kind of slavery. And this kind of slavery is, 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 um, is a kind of partnership. It's not the kind of slavery when we think about the modern world of slavery. Um, if we take that picture and we put it in the Bible, then it's going to be very distorted. Um, we need to look at it as, um, like Paul said, what Paul was referring to was a kind of um, an employer-employee relationship. People in those days, um, they, they, they give themselves out. Uh, we use the word in football these days. You say, ah, this guy was sold for such and such millions. And, you know, I, I mean, nobody is frowning against um, a player that is getting 400 million um, pounds for, you know, going to play for a, for a year or something like that. But that's the kind of slavery. You, you, you sold out to these people and you work for them for that time. And um, for other nations, they, they can oppress everyone, but God did not expect his people to oppress because one of the reasons for this kind of slavery is that people that find themselves in financial difficulties, they're not able to meet their daily needs and you don't want to leave them to dry out there. So there is a means for them to get back into the system until they, they get their business running and there is a redemption for them at every um, process. You know, they don't need to become slave forever. As long as we have somebody that can redeem them, then they become good and they can be returned back to society, which is not the same um, terms and conditions for the kind of uh, modern-day slavery that we look at, and we must be able to differentiate that. Thank you. There are several ways that people become slaves. Shimshon's mentioned the economic one, and so it's more like the bonded servant to willing thing. I, well, willing might be a disputed term there, but... You, you don't have to, but you know, sometimes you have to. Okay, uh, let's remember that in the Bible, there's no such thing as jails, right? So, like, um, if you if I catch you stealing, you have to pay me back. But if you can't pay me back, no one puts you in jail. You have to work for me. You're my slave until you pay back your debt. There's another way you can get slaves: war booty, right? Nation A fights Nation B. Welcome to unfortunate human history. Um, it happens. And at the end of Nation A fighting Nation B, there's usually a winner. Not always a draw, but usually 
one person wins, one person loses. And um, uh, you capture these people. We discovered that in Deuteronomy that these people would then join the people of God. And in fact, some cases, there was even the most fastest track to become a member of the community period was to actually be captured in battle and then uh, join the people of God. But Chimtron also notes that we did in Deuteronomy, um, everyone actually can become uh, uh, gates redeemed. It's a different process, but the redemption is still uh, valid. And everyone's walk is actually also kind of different. We don't all, we have the same God, the same master. And some of us have a fast track and a slow track, but, but there is this, uh, there is this thing called slaves. What's incumbent upon Israel is how you treat them. You're going to be different in terms of holiness to me. I know that that slaves happen, but when you have them, you will treat them differently. And, uh, and to the point where they might even want to, when it's time for their release, to say, no, I don't want to be released. I actually want to stay with you and your household and your gods because it's the best. And uh, so that's also something that we need to not overlook. So it's here in the text. Got to wrestle with it. May as well. Uh, Mordecai, you've got something to say? Yo, thank you. You know, when you say uh, different types of slavery, it reminded me of John 8, which we are technically, I mean, Dan and I are, you know, studying on Thursdays, and Reverend was there too. So now, in John 8, Jesus have this conversation, debate, discussion with Jews, and after he was talking about being freed and slayed, and they say, I'm reading from the text, they answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus said, Tuli tuli, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. And the slave does not remain in the house forever, basically pointing the scripture we are studying right now, but the son does remain forever. So if you are committing sin, you are the, basically slave of sin, that nobody, nobody is free, but a slave doesn't remain in a house forever. As we are reading here, there's a time limit, there's a time frame for that, but son remains and he frees people. So I just wanted to mention it. Excellent. Thanks, brother. I'll make a note of that because uh, I was there at that study for John 8, so I remember what our conversation All right, uh, Vito, David. Yes, Aaron, two, uh, a couple of things. Maybe from a biblical perspective, thinking about the idea of being a slave, it's who your allegiance is to. Maybe from the Lord God's perspective, it's who your allegiance is to. For example, I give my life up to serve somebody, right? I give all my to serve my master. And maybe this is what the Lord God is driving at, is that it's, it's about obedience. It's about who you give your life to. It's about who you're giving yourself up for. And perhaps that is why the Lord God is calling on Israel first. And, and I would suggest, it's just from my perspective, I would suggest that maybe we look at the bigger picture here because we're talking about Jubilee. We're talking about the rest of it. Right now at Sinai, the Lord God is setting up the groundwork. He's going to take the people to the promised land. He's going to set up a whole bunch of rules to show them that they are way out of reach of God at this point. They need to come to a certain point, a certain level, so that they can converse and they can actually live with the Lord God, right? So, and it's all, as I think Shimshon pointed out, that this is leading towards redemption. And even though we see the Israelites being pulled aside in a favorable way and the Gentiles being pushed to the one side, this is meant to be because right now, 
the law is standing to show everybody that they're, that they're, that they're way out of reach of the Lord God. So the Lord God's going to take them to the promised land to eventually to bring the Jewish people and the Gentiles together through Christ, who in the year of the Lord's favor, the Jubilee, everything is about redemption. Sin is set back to zero because Lord Jesus shed his blood for us, right? So maybe this is where we're going with this whole thing. Yeah. In fact, while we're on to that, shed to zero, let's talk about um, the Redeemer because we've got a theme of redemption. Yeah, we've got a theme of redemption. Okay, so who's actually doing the redeeming? Well, we've got this guy called the Goel, right? He yes. shows up. The kinsman redeemer, exactly. Yeah. Who is he? Jesus. Lord Jesus. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that, Peter. I'd set you up. Yes, I know that. But in the text, right, you got lots of them. <laughs> yeah. in, in Ruth, for example, is a good, is a good example. Yeah. Ruth, Ruth's an excellent example to begin to show how the concept of redemption and the Redeemer had already begun to shift a little and change. Okay, what do I mean by that? So first of all, if, as the text says, you know, I become poor, uh, something happens, I make a bad economic decision, something happens and I've got to sell myself in, 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 into slavery, you know, and, and I do that. But I can be redeemed. So who can redeem me? Family member. A fam right. A family member. Oh man. It doesn't say which one. Doesn't say how close a relative they have to be. It gives you quite a wide gambit, you know, brother, cousin, you know, uh, your neighbors, uncles, dogs, uh, uh, babysitter, you know, he can come and redeem. Um, it's actually quite a wide gambit. But once you get to the book of Ruth, suddenly They've created a hierarchy of redeemers. It's not in the text here. And what does Boaz say to Ruth? Anyone remember? There's a nearer kinsman redeemer. There's a nearer kinsman redeemer. Not, not in Leviticus there, is it? Just a, I need a redeemer. Buy the guy back. Okay, let's get back to, let's get back to zero here. Um, but So you can begin to see they take this text, which parts of it can be done, parts of it cannot be done, and then they begin, it begins to move through history in time and it begins to move through history theologically and it, become, it becomes prophetic, it becomes redemptive, it becomes messianic and, and other traditions begin to uh, become part of it and, and you suddenly get this hierarchy. And poor old Boaz says, yeah, I'd really like to do, do the redeeming thing, but unfortunately I've got to go talk to my, the guy above me probably an older brother or something. Um, and he does. He does his little little deal, kind of tricks the uh, man. Um, very well done. And he gets to, to, to fulfill the redemption. There's a beautiful story. And it, it shows us um, how that's playing out. Um, but it's interesting. It, the idea of the redeemer changes. Yeah, we, we can look at it this way as um, the practicability of that um of the Goel, the Redeemer Kingsman, um, so that we don't have confusion, everybody, you know, falling over each other to try to become the Redeemer Kingsman. So they create this hierarchy so that um, before it gets to your turn, you got to know that, okay, you're not, you're not going to fight anybody, you know. I mean, there is a system that can help them to manage it better. And uh, because everyone was open, just like you mentioned, 
a relative. I mean, it's very wild. And so uh, I think this is how the Alakai began to develop in that um, area, which is which I see almost as the same thing. Very good. Thanks. And it develops early. Yeah. Right? Right. Ruth is in the period of the judges. So we're beginning, we've come into the land, we've now got the Torah, we've, got, we've established ourselves, and we're already, already now beginning to interpret, add, form, form some theology, now that we actually physically possess the land. Uh, Yvonne, you've had a hand raised for a while. Real quick, Leviticus 25, it's a chiastic pattern, and it's interesting because I know that Andrew talked about the slavery um, the, the ones that are, you know, the mirror images is the land is not to be overworked. And the mirror of that uh, is the non-Israelites are not to work and to work overwork or enslave the, the Israelites. So you have that parallel. And <clears throat> but at the center of that chiasm is that the land and the people are Yahweh's, you know, are, God, are, are from God. And, and then the implication is that, like we had talked about with Ruth, is that Redemption is is never far off, and that's that's exactly the center of the chiasm: is the land and the people are are from Hashem, from God, and redemption is is not far off. And but something very interesting at the very end of that, um, in verse fifty five, he talks about Egypt. He makes a reference to Egypt about the slavery. He's talking about slavery and redemption in Egypt. When you go and you think about Egypt, well, what happened to under, under Joseph? And you have a same pattern. You have seven intervals of time. You have the wealth, um, the great abundance with Joseph when he was he was when he was in Egypt. But um, the difference it wasn't. It was like a non-jubilee because the 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 regulations were to centralize the land and the power in the hands of Pharaoh. And with jubilee, it's the land and it's to decentralize the land and the power, um, and it's to lease out. God leases it out in an equitable manner. So it's very interesting that. In a sense, uh, but the interesting thing about that in Egypt is that he wanted to include. When you see Leviticus and you think, "Wow, this is just—is this just for the Jews? You know, for the Jews and the, what about the non-Jews?" But he makes a reference to not overwork the land, not overwork uh, the the non-Israelites, to not overwork the, the 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 Jews. But it's interesting that this proposition—it's like so with 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 um, Egypt, he he wants to. Um, it's like a de-jubilee. De the, the land in, 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 in Egypt, the reference to Egypt with, the, with them being in, under Joshua, is that he did want to include others in the wealth. So it wasn't just, you know, Joseph, but it was the land of Egypt and also the land, the whole, you know, world at the time. But ultimately, in that case, it was a non-jubilee because it didn't centralize the land and the wealth. But they were included in that package. So it's interesting that this, this, this idea of Egypt at the end of the chapter is that unlike Egypt, where it was centralized and not, <clears throat> um, and not shared, that he will do the opposite of what was done with Joseph. What's also interesting is the land that we're talking about that gets swapped over and rechanged is a very Pacific land. But once you're talking about redeeming a person, you're not talking about property of a land, which means the Jubilee can actually be enacted overseas. Right? You don't have to be in Israel to buy back a person. Right? You know, you can, so, so it's interesting that the Jubilee has a very specific place, right? 
you know, um, and it's the land of Israel. But then there's going to be a dispersion and a redeemer can still act overseas because the actual t- there's no one in the text that says, you know, when your brother sells you into slavery, but only in Israel. Um, however, having said that, there is a Pacific tribe that's mentioned in this text, which, of course, are the Levites. Why do you think they are singled out? But before we answer that, I've got a hand raised either by Dan or Multi. Yeah, it's me. You know, you're, you're studying this when uh, Israelites or any other nation who invaded the land of Israel didn't obey law, God, the land itself physically or naturally kicked them out of the land. And they stopped raining, get cooks, this, that. But, you know, the land of Israel is very unique in this case because you, you don't have any other country in the world that was invaded by many powers and none of them basically could stay in like you go to turkey turks has been there for forever brits there germans you know nobody knows who came before them because they have been there forever but in israel you see it kept changing it kept changing because it is promised here it's the, this land specifically that's why it's called the holy land belongs to god and his law, of course, is, his law applies to everyone living in other parts of the world, but it applies a bit more strictly here in this land. So if you decide to live in Israel, you better watch out. Yeah. Not bad. The end. The end. <laughs> so I have a question on uh, uh, the Redeemer. Okay. How does he buy back people? And the obvious question is money, right? Yeah, he's got wealth. So where did we somehow switch the Redeemer into um, uh, blood and forgiving your sins? And we do. We, we turn the Jubilee into a prophet. We turn the Redeemer into a Pacific character. As we can see it's already beginning to get that way in, um, in, 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 in the period of the judges. How do we get to the to the prophetic messianic nature. Any ideas, guys? Because it, it has to, it has to do with covenant. It has to do with the death of a testator, right? Let's 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 finish that thought. Can you just say that again? I was I didn't quite write it down. It, it it has to do with covenant. It has to do with with a new covenant coming through the death of a testator, because you can't introduce a new covenant unless the person that's holding the covenant dies, so that you could get a new one to come up. Uh, actually. That's a late Second Temple period tradition. I, I agree with you. I, I, I agree with you. Like, read, read my lips. I agree with you. But <laughs> Je- Jeremiah 31, in the, in, the, in the whole chapter, doesn't mention blood, doesn't mention a sacrifice. Simply, God says, I'm going to make a new covenant with you, and I'm going to forgive you of your sins. And you go, okay, but there's no mention of a blood sacrifice or any of that kind of stuff. Um, and and uh, that that shows up in, in that idea, that connection between blood and the covenant shows up in the, during the Maccabean period. So by the time of Jesus, it's a well-entrenched piece of theology, and uh, Yeshua himself says, this is my blood of the new covenant, of which um, none of that is actually technically, technically in uh, the original Hebrew text. There's no wine at Passover. Uh, there's no blood in Jeremiah 31 but there is by the time of the New Testament. There's a concept also, I think I can't remember where in the Old Testament, where it also implies the, the cattle on a thousand hill of mine. Basically, God's saying, I own everything. So what would you use 
you know, what can you pay me for your redemption in that, in that concept? So it's very clear that everything belongs to God. So we, so when Lord Jesus comes, he's going to, obviously, we, know, we get where it's coming from. But there is, God's really making it clear, there's nothing we can give for that own redemption anyway. But perhaps, Aaron, Aaron where we make the connection from Jeremiah 31 to Lord Jesus is this is about sin, right? We bring in sin in now because with sin, I can't meet with the Lord God. If I have no sin, I can meet with the Lord God. For example, that's putting it very lightly, but and and so we are told that without the shedding of blood, there can be no atonement, right? Yeah, and that's, that's what I was going to say, David, if I could just jump in for a second, Aaron, sorry. It's just that it's, it's been the plan since the creation of the world. And so I think that, yeah, these things that we're reading about right now are just pictures of that reality. But, you know, the specific mentioning of the word, I'm not sure what you mean by that, uh, Aaron. No, I just, to, I just, I'm asking the question, how do we think it moves from point A to, to, to point B? Because um, the actual text here, the Redeemer, Right? Is a, there's a string of them. They are physically purchasing back their relatives because they're wealthy, right? You know, it's you know, it's their stuff. You know, um, and uh, and and even if they didn't, even if they didn't, you still get released in jubilee, right? You know, it's like, so technically, technically, you don't even need a go out. Think about that. It's like, hang on, I was like, I don't need a redeemer. What are you talking about, Aaron? Wait, wait, don't, 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 don't make me say I don't need Jesus. That's don't, don't go there. Um, but what the text is saying is, it's, it's giving us the theology of redemption. Redemption is so powerful that eventually God Himself says, "Okay, guys, you can't seem to do do it yourselves. I'm doing it. It just it all finishes." But we'll have this opportunity to redeem earlier because everybody wants redemption now, not later now and then it becomes prophetic this this uh this period of time becomes prophetic the message of the redeemer becomes prophetic and messianic and he begins to take on um god-like characters but then Aaron, it has to be like like paul goes to great lengths to explain that that sarah and uh, and hagar are like hagar is the physical jerusalem hannah is uh uh, Sarah is the spiritual Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem to come. Maybe it's it's the same sort of principle. Whereas when we're looking at the flesh, you're redeemed by money. When we're looking at the other side, this is about life, eternal life. It's a yep. different thing, right? Yep, yep. That's right. He's taking on it's taking on an otherworldly character. Yeah, um, it's becoming supernatural. Natural. natural. Uh, Shimshon, you've got a hand raised and been patient. Yeah. Um, thank you. Um, the, first, we must look at it from um, the physical to the spiritual, because at the point you were coming out from Egypt, they were dealing with physical issues. You were dealing with um, uh, when somebody gets broke, when his um, account is in red and um, he can't meet up his needs. And so this is a way out of it to become slave. Then later on, you can redeem yourself or you have somebody coming to redeem you. The person is not, um, it's not mandatory for any of the goel to redeem. It has to be a willing thing for the Goel. So that's why we see Ruth that um, the other Goel was not willing and it was not a crime. I mean, it's not. Um, and of course, like um, Aaron just mentioned also, this person can also wait 
I mean, but 50 years is such a long time. I mean, <laughs> uh, if you could get it now, why wait still 50 years time? So um, it's um, it's a real good way to get out of it. Um, remember, I think it was um, in the Kings where we have this prophet that his child was going to go into slavery because the, the prophet was owing and they came to Elisha and they did this um, powerful miracle that, um, you know, redeemed them from that situation. Uh, where, when, where the oil was not going to cease until they were able to pay. Imagine if the boys or the children had to go into slavery and 50 years later they have to wait. See, I mean, they will have, you know, exhausted their youthful life before they get to that point. So we see, yes, technically it's not compulsory, but uh, everybody needs a goal at a, at a point in time. Then we could see, like uh, where Paul was quoting in um, First Corinthians, in that time it's began to be very much spiritualized. Yeah, we were seeing it as very spiritual thing. Um, it's not just, uh, you know, redeeming us from um, from physical slavery. Um, Christ was talking about um, us not being slaves to sin because we can be slaves to sin. So we're not talking about human beings anymore. We are now talking about spiritual things. And so Paul says that lessons we have been bought with a price. And this price is not um, dollars. We're talking about the blood of Christ that paid our redemption. And so that is how it's developed to that point. And, um, and it, it fits the theology, and we must appreciate that. Thanks, Shimshon. To help, uh, to, to help try and work out how we move from the financial, physical, to the spiritual, and, uh, and as Sharon mentioned, blood, 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 there is one big event which shakes Jewish theology to its core, and you begin to re and relook at uh, essentially everything, um, and that includes sacrifices, that includes blood, that includes redeemers, that includes the coming Messiah and the kingdom of heaven, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, what's the big event? Exile. The destruction of Jerusalem and the collapse of the temple. Correct, the first one, Babylonian exile. Yeah, the Babylon. Yeah, exile. Yeah, and I was, and, and something very interesting about that, Aaron, is after 50 years, when Nebuchadnezzar, he erects that statue, 50 years after the Babylonian kingdom, it falls to Cyrus, and Cyrus is the figure of a Goel, and then Babylon falls, Judah is reestablished back to her land, so it's another idea of a memorial jubilee, I think it's very interesting. Yes, and Cyrus actually isn't called a Goel, he's called a Mashiach. Yeah, my God. Right, and so you have the 50 years again from... 50 Babylon. years, uh, mm-hmm. something happens, you get a release, you get a return to the land, and it's done by a messianic character. So if you can begin to... Yeah. Exile, exile begins to change. Because once you don't have a temple and you cannot make sacrifices, and let's remember, as we've been studying in Leviticus, the majority of our sacrifices that we offer don't have blood in them. Right. Remember, what is most of our sacrifice? Minka. That's right. Exactly. It's grain. And that doesn't mean that blood's not important. Don't, don't do not put that in my lips. Okay? <laughs> it's just that it says that you've got to build the theology. Right. Your average little dude who doesn't own a cow, who's never, ever, ever going to be at, offer, make a blood sacrifice ever in all their life is still forgiven. Why? Because God is good. 
And, uh, and he says, look, I understand completely. Just bring your little flower and come and be with me because that's what I want. And, uh, and so anyway, but you've got no temple. You've got you sitting in, in uh, Babylon. You've got prophets like Jeremiah saying, sit, you know, build houses. You know, Jeremiah doesn't say, eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow you're going to go to hell. You know, it's not, not what he says, okay? Um, you're already beginning to start thinking, okay, well, what, what, what was the, what, if I don't have a temple, if I don't have a sacrifice, how can I serve the Lord? Daniel seems to think that he can. And, uh, and so you're already beginning to relook at all of these themes, including land redemption, Messiah, Redeemer, and, and you're beginning you're beginning to spiritualize. You're beginning to look at other levels of the text. And, uh, and it begins to flourish. Second temple period theology is flourishing theology. And you're beginning to, to bring in uh, the importance. It's in the late second temple period that it becomes human sacrifice, which brings on the Redeemer, right? Human sacrifice, uh, human blood makes God act. The blood of a righteous person makes God wake up and come down and actually save people. Well, but God planned it. It doesn't do anything. Like this is all pre-planned and it's all, I'm not sure what you mean by that, Aaron, when you say that you have to build the theology. Okay, it, you do. It, God is not utilitarian. God doesn't do something to, to, to uh, as a one-off, just I do this to make a step. That's, that's not how God operates. Well, Jesus means, was the one-off. That's not utilitarianism. <laughs> What's utilitarianism got to do with theology? It is, it is theology. There's a lot of people who actually think that uh, God just used the Jewish people to record the Bible, get the Messiah, and then get out of Dodge. And, um, and that's, that's utilitarianism. Uh, that's not the way God operates. Um, although some people do hold that theology. Yeah, it's a very poor one. Uh, David, Vida? And I just want to say, I loved what Yvonne said because it was, it's fascinating how we see they go into what you said, they go into this exile with the, the, the very first Babylonian exile. And you really think, Lord God, what have you done? Yeah, you've given us the land, you've given us all of this. But it just shows, I, I just, I can't stop at seeing the grace and the mercy of God throughout scripture. People say God is not merciful in the Old Testament, but I, I don't know how they can say that. Because the mercy of God is just the grace of God is just being portrayed over and over. He could have blotted out as, you know, the Jewish people in that exile forgotten it. But he, as, as you say, as Cyrus comes in as a picture of a Messiah and redeems them back and gives them everything for the land. The mercy of God is just, and you read this about the redeeming, you know, the 50 years, what um, I think uh, the guy with Moti was saying, how it, it's absolutely fascinating that God is doing this so that everything can be reset, everything he's restores, he restores all the time. It's amazing. Yes. Aaron, may I? Can I just squeeze in a quick question here that's troubling me? We, we're talking about theology here. How would you reconcile the idea when the Lord, when, when, when Abraham says to, to his son, Lord God will provide himself a sacrifice? Amen. It's planned for yeah. day one. Well, God says he will prepare a lamb, right? He doesn't say he will be the lamb. That comes later. But then John the Baptist is going to say. Correct. This is the lamb of God. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Who takes away the sin of the world. So 
John the Baptist is linking Genesis with the scapegoat, but there's no sin in Genesis. Like we're not killing Isaac for sin and we're not killing the lamb for the sins of Isaac. But they can still be a picture. They can still be pictures of things. Yes, absolutely. I'm not saying that they're not. Okay. They're, you're, you're building. Okay, Mordecai, you were going to make a comment and then Shimshon. You thank you. I'm trying to answer what Andrew asked. He is asking about why God specifically, you know, saved Israel. Because it's in Genesis. You know, he tells Abraham that he, his descendants will be slaves for a couple hundred years. And then he will come and, he will come, come and save them. It's like, you know, it says that the Lord said, Abraham, no, you're certain that your offspring will be soldiers in a land that is not theirs and will be served instead. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. It's, God remembers his promises and he just kept his promises. It doesn't mean that he doesn't like other nations or doesn't, other nations doesn't deserve redemption. But just like the keeping the promises and also being like to the nations is a part of it. If there is no Torah, there's no Messiah. Jesus is, is Jesus, is Jesus the Torah, the word? Yeah, I mean, of course. <laughs> okay. You, you don't pick up a Bible and go, this is Jesus. No, right? but... <laughs> Okay. Yeah, um, at me, but he said it, not me. Go argue with God. I'm just joking. Aaron, Aaron, Aaron there is a scripture that says, uh, uh, lower come in the volume of the book, it is written of me. That, and in that it says that the, a body will be prepared. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and that's a psalm that's from a psalm which actually says, that uh, that in the depths of the earth, God prepared a body, which is a very interesting piece of theology. Um, not to be done here, okay, but just the idea of uh, <laughs> the idea of God actually already preparing uh, a body way, 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 way ahead of time. It's a, it's a can really, really spin you right out. Shimshon, you've got your hand raised. Yes, um, just um, wanted to answer that. Um, Sharon's question about, you know, theology developing. Uh, when you look at how we understand the scripture today, we're able to look back and um, do some reverse engineering. When the word comes in that time, during the time of those people in the wilderness, they were not thinking any messianic. They were thinking naturally. They were thinking very physical thing. But we today, we can look back. We have that luxury to look back because we've seen events and how things fall into place. We just... Um, Yvonne just brought out how um, the, the, the Babylonian exile, um, how it's going to the 50th year and it's time for them to begin to return. We see that falling into place because we, are, we, we, have, the, we have that uh, luxury of seeing history and be able to do some reverse engineering. So with those, we can now begin to build theology. That's what it means by theology building. Yes, God has all these plans from the beginning. The plans are not are not uh, out of God. I mean, they're not taking God by surprise. God has all these plans from the beginning. But we, as individuals living in different generations, with the knowledge of God begin to evolve. We begin to know God better than the, the previous people because we have all this wealth of information. That's what we, that's what um, Aaron meant by that um, theology is developing. From oh, that. okay, not making it up as you go. No, no, not making it up. No, no, not making it up. Just it's developing. <laughs> but I mean, discovering God's theology that already existed. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Everything has been from the foundation, and uh, we will continue to 
um, understand more and more likely to be drawn to it as time goes on. So, oh, so what is the word, Aaron, real quick? Sorry, two-second question. What is the word? What well, is the word? It's not a two-second answer. I can tell you that. Um, <laughs> the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning. I mean, you see, Paul, John tried to answer it in that very nice way. But um, you can see it also in, in Proverbs. It, it refers to the wisdom as the Torah, and of course, and also kind of referring to it as God again. So you see, um, it's very synonymous that you use the such word to explain who God is, who Jesus is, and how the Messiah will come. So it's it's not one point, you know, one um, text or one verse answers all questions. You need to really study the whole of Torah, and that's why we refer to the whole of Torah as Jesus. <laughs> so taking it now on a personal slash community level for us, okay, here's God giving some instructions on the theology of redemption, it's community. The community must redeem the community, right? Families redeem families. You reset to communities. What about us now? What, what role should we play as agents of the redemption? Go for it, guys. What do you think? Should we just wait for the jubilee? God will sort it all out, right? No, I mean, it's written. <laughs> it's written. Go and make disciples. Amen. This is very simple. Get to work. You're building the kingdom. You're bringing the redemption. You know, in Romans, I, I was reading this a couple of weeks ago, that how will they believe if they don't know? How will they know if nobody teaches? And how will they, you know, like, it's, does everybody remember the chapter? The same thing. It's very simple theology, right? Very simple order. We are partaking in it. Yeah. But there are people like they don't, you know, there are many churches in the old city of Jerusalem that they don't teach, they don't evangelize as much as the Christ church does. It's, it's wrong. Amen, brother. I agree. Yeah. You don't need to wait for the Jubilee. When is the Jubilee? When is the next Jubilee? It's today. Yes. Amen. Preacher brother, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Okay, Psalm 95. David Ovida, you got a comment on the Redeemer or acting as a Redeemer? No, just on your question, Erin. I was just going to say, I agree with what uh, Mochi was saying, because we're in the Jubilee now and the Jubilee is coming. In Christ, we have this absolute freedom. We have been set, we, we've been purchased, we've been sealed. And it's our, it's our responsibility now to bring others into that freedom, into that Jubilee, which will be the great Jubilee when Christ comes. Amen, sister. Amen. So we get to invite other people into this redemption story. In fact, that is one of our callings, right? And so the uh, we and so who is our brother? Who is our sister? Who has? Uh, yes, exactly. It almost goes back into that question: Who is my neighbor? You know, who who should I actually be be sharing with? And uh, it should be everyone. So we get to participate. There's that participation plan again. God is the ultimate redeemer. Absolutely. Blessed is are the feet of him who is bearing good news, as uh, as Romans would like would like to say. It's a it's a all th as you would say, Sharon. Right from the beginning, it has always been a joint mission between heaven and earth. Something God starts, yes, but then He constantly asks us for our continual participation. He puts the fire on the altar; you keep the altar. He makes us holy; may you stay holy. I make the Sabbath holy, you keep the Sabbath holy. 
I've created males and females. Now you go make some more males and females, right? You know, uh, there's this this participation thing that we have as part of the divine plan. And it's a delight to the Lord, which is one of those very interesting things. He set this up because he likes it this way. If he did not like it this way, it would not be this way. So there's something about this, actually, that also um, delights God himself. It's a very nice thought. Yvonne. Yeah, I, I just the concept of of Messiah of of, of Yeshua uh, as a Messiah, you know, as as a you know the concept of the Jubilee. He starts the ministry. There's dryness, silence, and barrenness. You have, you know, Elizabeth, Zechariah being silent, John the Baptist um, alone in the desert. Then Jesus, he personifies the whole concept of Israel going through the desert and all of that. Eventually, he he starts the ministry and he goes to Isaiah sixty one and he talks about the jubilee that that whole passage the spirit is upon him to anoint the good news to the poor proclaim liberty so he's already anticipating through the death and the resurrection that this is going to happen and then you know he after forty days he he leaves and on the fiftieth day you have the the coming of the spirit which in a sense again is a redemption is the the in in, in in the the dwelling of the spirit within us can also be the fiftieth another kind of jubilee pattern through the Messiah Yeshua in his life. And what's interesting for me as well, Yvonne, is that even if we fail, God still redeems at the end. That's a, that's an interesting little part of Leviticus. Is like even if you can't buy them back, if you can't invite them in, if you can't do that, if you can't play redeemer, I will. I will make sure that in the end. It's all all worked out, which is a, a a very very comforting thought that God has it planned out, and He will will ultimately be the great King. That doesn't detract from from our calling at all. Because Leviticus is called into this, and um, we need to uh, have the courage and the strength to encourage each other to actually walk this out. That we need to act as redeemers. We need to keep keep bringing the good news, and uh, it doesn't have to be in the land. It can be all, all, all over. And, of course, then there's the prophetic jubilee. We are also still waiting for that trumpet blast, that time when it does all actually be given to the right people in the right areas, and uh, the Lord himself lives and rules and reigns here in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And, and, again, the, the concept, you see that even... I love the book of Ezekiel because at the end, it's like there's judgment and judgment. And then God, he wants them to come back. If you return to me, seek me. Always. If, and if, and again, the redemption is again, it's the if clause. If you do this from the Old Testament, from the Tanakh, all the way to the Brit Hadashah. So it's, it's not a sure I'm in, you know, <laughs> But it's it's there is the if if you obey me, I will come and dwell with you. I will redeem you. I will be so. Not forgetting that there is the participation. Of course, it's by grace, but there is um, the works that need to accompany our faith, um, not because of 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 our works, but if and so it's it's interesting. You have that all the way all the way through the book of Revelation to the to the overcomers. To those that he's going to redeem. To those that are overcome, yeah. I'm going to read out. I'm going to read out a, a part of the chat from Andrew as a as a nice nice close. The more we know, 
the more we realize uh, we don't know. And But what a privilege we have to have encountered the God of creation. Amen to that. We need to remain humble. We must act justly and love mercy to proclaim the jubilee to those who have not yet encountered the God of love. Yes, yes. Amen. All right, brothers, let's do that as, a, as a, an endeavor uh, for, our, for our continued walk in holiness together, encouraging each other to do just that. Thank you for listening. Our sermons and Bible studies are on all your favorite podcasting platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and more. Sermons can also be found on YouTube. Follow us on Facebook for alerts on live streams. If you are blessed by these teachings, please prayerfully consider giving toward the work of Christchurch. Visit ChristchurchJerusalem.org Blessings from the City of the Great King